something without warning, love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's all right with me Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be Welcome to WNH H FM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us about conversations and ideas that matter with people making a difference. Today, our guest is Jennifer Ho, a professor that teaches critical race uh, uh, theory. Uh, how are you, Jennifer? I'm doing well. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> I, I Sometimes I get myself in trouble because I literally become just in time. Uh, so <laughs> it is good to be with you. How are you? How is family? How are corgis? Um, the corgi actually is having um, some issues. He he hurt his leg. Thank you for asking. So I'm waiting on a vet appointment for him. But we're hoping that he'll be um, running around soon. So I am so, so excited to connect with you. I uh, uh, Sharing uh, uh, Jamaican uh, heritage, I, I, I always try to start off with something light to allow people to get to know us and connect. And so what's your favorite dish, right? I know I'm probably going to get you in trouble for the holidays. Someone's going to say, what? You didn't like this or you don't like that? But what's your favorite traditional dish? I mean, right now it's oxtail, hey. um, which is so, it's so expensive to buy, um, to buy the meat. Um, but oxtail is, is sort of hands down. My favorite. I, I think ever since, um, I think it became my favorite, I should say, uh, once my uncle died, because that was that was among his favorite dishes. And so I really feel that um, eating oxtail makes me feel closer to him. Um, he was somebody who really got me started on my path to social justice. Mm. Um, and he died of colon cancer way too young. Mm. Well, I hopefully right um the good food and exercise will heal us all <laughs> and uh um uh you know condolences but i i i'm excited uh this month is asian american pacific islander heritage month and so just wanted to break off and start off like what do these heritage months mean to you why is it important and uh, Often in your introductions, you talk about how your family's immigration story. So to give our guests and viewers a little bit of context of who you are, can you share that a little bit with us? And then, you know, why it's so critical that we have these historical heritage months. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for thank you for noticing that about how I structure my biography. So this was actually not my idea. I really want to give credit where credit is due um, to my friend and former colleague, Jean Moskal at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And that's where I used to teach before coming to the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, and so after Donald Trump was elected and in, I think, roughly January of 2017, he enacted the Muslim ban. Jean had this idea that we sh those of us who have immigrant and refugee connections should make that really apparent because i think certainly the way that certain news media have framed who immigrants and refugees are um, it's painted a picture that i think is inaccurate and so that's been a habit of mine that i've continued because I believe it is important for people to know that my expertise comes not just through the books I've studied and the classes I've um, taken and the classes I, I teach, but that I have a deep, intimate connection um, with these topics because my father is a refugee from communist China and my mother is an immigrant from Jamaica and her parents were immigrants from Hong Kong mm -hmm. to Kingston. 
And so I also have a, a maybe a little bit more complicated family history than um, the typical, if, if one can say there's a typical, I don't know that there is, but if, if one thinks about a typical Asian American, I think my family's biography would probably not be what one would think of largely. And I'm so glad, Justin, you asked, I should ask you what your favorite Jamaican dish is, because I really, I mean, the, the funny thing is, when I meet people who are Jamaican or who have family in Jamaica, they don't question that I'm Chinese Jamaican. But, but for everyone else, it's a constant having to explain why there are Chinese people in Jamaica. Uh, to answer your question, I, I think if I couldn't pick oxtail, it would probably be curry goat. Mm. Um, definitely love me some curry goat. I, uh, I think one of the beautiful things about Jamaica, the motto being out of uh, many people, out of, out of one, many people, right? And so... Uh, Jamaica has this interesting history of being a slave port that had so many different people and because of the English Empire having so many cultures mashed together um, that once you said you're a Yardie, I'm like, cool, you're a Yardie. Doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter what continent, and like part mm -hmm. of the diaspora, part of the diaspora. Um, but I, I, I think to follow up on that, um, you know, how how do you deal with some of these tensions of other people's perception of, you know, where you belong? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. Um, I also realized I never answered your question about Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and thank you for also acknowledging that. I, I have mixed feelings about um, when we designate a week or a month I mean, on the one hand, it's obviously good. It's obviously good to highlight that there are histories of people that have been largely left out of most textbooks and quite frankly, in some states are currently being banned. Right. So this is good, right? On the other hand, um, I think, you know, and I was, I was actually just recently on the Tavis Smiley show and we were talking about black history. Um, and I believe that I'm, yes, I'm glad there's a Black History Month, um, but Black History should actually be discussed every day of the year. And if it were up to me, I would actually make that a requirement in our K through 12 school that everyone should take a class at some point on Black History because Black History is also U.S. history. Um, so uh, yes, I'm glad that there's an Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. I will say that I'm Asian American identified, not Pacific Islander identified. And I do think that we leave out Pacific mm. Islander stories. And that's something that, I'm, um, that I've also done and that I'm trying to um, correct is to, when we talk about Asian American and Pacific Islanders, to really try and center Pacific Islander stories, Pacifica stories, and to really think about the way, especially that settler colonialism has influenced um, the, the Pacific and the nations that comprise uh, Pacific Islands. No, that 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 is that is something that we we should do. I I I often when I think about about Asian American history, it, like so many other people who are probably listening, there's so little that you learn, right and the exception of when you learn becomes mm -hmm. California Gold Rush. It's very limited. There's almost no talk about internment. If there is talk about it, it makes it seem like it was, you know, a year or so, and then everything went back to normal mm -hmm. and that we just moved on and pressed on and everyone was equal. And, and so, you know, I guess my first question to this effect, do you feel that we talk about Japanese encampment enough? Oh, no. And and I think people don't quite understand the degree to which that was one of the most, that was an event that stripped everyone on the West Coast their constitutional rights. So the executive order um, Executive Order 9066 that Franklin Roosevelt signed in 1942 
makes no mention of race or nationality. It, it simply authorizes the military to designate who they think is a threat. So the military um, singles out Italian nationals, almost entirely men, men who are um, immigrants, Italian immigrants and not US citizens. They single out German nationals, again, mm -hmm. largely men who are immigrants. They single out Japanese men who are immigrants and they put these men into a special detention center um, in the north. But what the military also does is to say that every single person of Japanese ancestry um, is a threat to the United States. And so it incarcerates women and children and men. Um, and the language of the evacuation order says that, um, that if you are a Japanese alien or non-alien, and that non-alien language is really interesting because it's essentially saying if you're a Japanese alien, non-citizen, or if you're a Japanese American citizen, you're still gonna get incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And I think if we stopped and thought about what it means for the US government in this time period to incarcerate its own citizens, I mean, this is why it's un unconstitutional and, and why inevitably years later when it finally went to the Supreme Court, um, it was deemed unconstitutional. And we should be talking about this more in US history classes to really kind of think about, you know, people talk about government overreach all the time. I'm not hearing a lot of people talk about this as a particularly troubling government overreach and the reparations that came about in 1987 that Ronald Reagan signed, which honestly should be a model for reparations like the Tulsa race massacre. Yeah, no, I, I even, with what you are sharing, I, I did not know uh, that we also uh, signaled out uh, non signaled out Italian uh, 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 non nationals and German non nationals, which it's like oh, that's a huge deal. Um, I I I also think about how we talk about race and how we talk about culture, how we talk about immigration, and so. I, one of the things that I often think about in terms of uh, uh, America's immigration system and policies is the Chinese Exclusion Act and how really legal precedent has built off of that mm -hmm. uh, to today, uh, which has allowed for legal arguments that, you know, if they weren't built off of this fundamental core uh, 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 law that uh, we, we wouldn't be able to discriminate in ways that we do for the sake of national security and so yeah. I, I guess what can you share more about the mixed marriage policy during World War uh, II because I that was as I was reading your work and, and, and better understanding again I was amazed by what I didn't know and I was like, oh, people should know. <laughs> people should know. People should know. Yeah, we also don't have a really good way of talking about multiracial people and mixed race people. And I think because um, the U.S. Census now allows people to check more than one box um, and to identify as multiracial. So things and we've had increasing numbers of people who are multiracial and they're more widely seen, I would say, like one of the most famous mixed race people I think we have nowadays is um, Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, but, you know, even back in 19, in the 1940s, there were mixed race people. There were people, um, there were Japanese Americans who were uh, married to non-Japanese Americans. And the mixed, the mixed marriage policy that you're talking about and that I write about in my book, Racial Ambiguity, um, it really starts with white U.S. servicemen who are married to Japanese women. Some of them are Japanese American and some of them are, are um, Japanese nationals. And they're going off to war. They're fighting on behalf of the US government and their families are being being incarcerated, right? They're being put in detention centers. And so they're writing in protest, right? They're they're writing to their 
um, congressmen and they're saying, and by the way, everyone was a congressman back in the 1940s. There were no, to the best of my knowledge, no non-binary, no women who were serving in Congress in the 1940s. And so they were writing to their congressmen and their senators and saying, hey, I'm going to fight for my country. Um, I don't think my, my wife, my child should be put in a concentration camp. And by the way, I'm using the language of the U.S. government. It was concentration camp that the U.S. government was using. Um, and so that's, that's actually how the mixed marriage policy was started. It was initially meant to help white servicemen married to Japanese women who had mixed race Japanese and white children um, to not be detained. The U.S. government, the lawyers realized that they couldn't just limit it to white servicemen, that they had to open it up and to say any Japanese um, woman married to a non-Japanese man. Although what's interesting, and they debated this, right? They they had debates about whether a Japanese man married to a white woman or a non-Japanese woman would also qualify. And in the language of the memos that were sent around in the War Relocation Authority, the driver behind the mixed marriage policy is assimilation and assimilation into whiteness. So there was also this presumed assumption that most of the people that would be part of this policy would be mixed marriages between white and Japanese people. And there was also this assumption at the time that the, that the husband's culture would dominate. So if the husband was white, then it was a white American culture that would dominate in the home. And in the language of all these memos, white and American were used interchangeably. They were synonymous for one another. So anytime you saw American, it meant white and white also meant American. Um, and so they were basically saying a Japanese man married to a white woman would mean that the household was Japanese and that the children would be raised in a Japanese home. Whereas a white man married to a Japanese woman, it would be a white household. And they thought putting the children into an all Japanese environment would prevent their assimilation into an American way of life. And they didn't want to um, infect. I mean, this was literally the language in, in these memos. They didn't want to infect the children with the contamination of this Japanese culture. And so that's one of the drivers behind the mixed marriage policy is to protect the children. And by the way, you can hear echoes of this kind of language in the way that we talk about children today. Yeah, as you were talking about it, I, I was thinking about, you know, the separation policy and, and how, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, you have youth who are born here, but their parents aren't, and how somehow walling them off will protect the integrity of Americanness. Um, I, I, something that I, I, I always have trouble with, and so I'm the only American born in my family. My family all immigrated from Jamaica. And so one of the things that I grew up with was this idea of assimilation, right? And... and, and, and it being important to assimilate to American culture and to uh, assimilate into black American culture as a way to fit in. And, and so, you know, I think one of the things that I see uh, and one of the things that you speak on is the fact that um, despite Asian Americans being in the U.S. for some centuries, right, there's still this ambiguous, weird culture of always, well, where are you from? And so, like, what do you mm -hmm. see the role of assimilation is? And, and, and is assimilation necessarily good or bad? And just your perspective. Yeah. So I think this is somewhat of a tricky thing to talk about. Certainly the way that um, I learned about assimilation when I was taking classes as an undergraduate, um, particularly my ethnic studies courses, that assimilation seemed like it was an, in the United States context, an assimilation into whiteness. Um, and that it was, and certainly the way that 
the U.S. government has has used assimilation in its own governmental policies. And so I'm thinking of things like um, Indian boarding schools, where, again, assimilation was the purpose of taking basically stealing kids, right, stealing um, native kids from their homes and putting them into boarding schools that were horrific, that were horrific. Um, and, and the purpose was to assimilate them into a white American way of life and a Christian way of life. So if that's what assimilation is, then, then yeah, it's not, it's not good. Um, but I do think that there are certain norms that when you are born into a country or when you are living for an extended period in a country, you adapt to. And then in some ways, there's nothing wrong with that. So for example, I've spent a lot of time in Spain and Spain has a different rhythm, a different culture. Um, I've certainly, um, I'm learning Spanish. I try and speak in Spanish when I'm in Salamanca. Um, I adapt to the fact that they have a siesta. Like, are these things in which I'm assimilating? Am I acculturating? Um, and I'm very American, right? So even though I do have ties to both China and Jamaica, you know, I'm also a kid that was born in New York and raised in California. I, I speak with a kind of classic California kind of nondescript accent. Um, I've in some ways assimilated, you could say, or you could just say that, you know, I was born in the U.S. and I acculturated to certain American norms. And I guess acculturation might seem like it's less um, less of a political or less of a damaging term to use because I do think that we acculturate ourselves mm. um, to different ways of being and that it's not a matter of losing, right? Like your identity when you acculturate, I think it's, it's in some ways a matter of respect. Like when I ask people to take off their shoes when they come into my home, right? Because I prefer people not to wear their shoes when they come inside my house. Uh, I, I could just hear my mom's accent about Dutty and Nasty, and I was just like, oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, you know, what is racial a ambiguity, and and how, how should people talk about racial ambiguity? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So I, I write about racial ambiguity because I, I really started to, to think about you know, the experiences of mixed race Asian Americans and the ways in which mixed race Asian Americans, um, you know, really are to my mind racially ambiguous because it's not just simply a matter of um, deciding that you're gonna identify as one or the others. In some cases, people identify for you um, and that there are various political stakes depending on what the racial mixture of Asian and is. So I mentioned Kamala Harris before, and there were a lot of debates leading up to the 2020 election about who she was. Was she Asian? Was she Indian? Was she Jamaican? Was she Black? Was she African-American? And that all of these terms, while some people might think that they're synonymous for one another, right, that Jamaican and Black and African-American are all the same, they're really not. Um, which I know you know very well, Justin, right? Like these terms have meanings for different communities um, and really people wanting her to choose, right? To say like, if she, that she presents as a black woman and therefore she should only identify as black. And, you know, I wrote an opinion piece basically saying that I believe Kamala Harris had the right to identify however she wants and that we shouldn't be telling Kamala Harris how she should identify that she, you know, there's something called the mixed race bill of rights by Dr. Maria Root. And in the mixed race bill of rights, Maria Root says, that a multiracial person has the right to identify however they want, and they have the right to change their mind about how they identify. And so, you know, that's what got me thinking about racial ambiguity because I have family members, I have cousins um, who are racially mixed, and that in any given period, they could be misperceived as Mexican American, mm -hmm. as Filipino, um, as Indian American, South Asian. Um, Middle Eastern, because their racial mixture makes it hard for people to correctly identify them, if if that's maybe a way to talk about it, right? And I'm even uncomfortable saying correctly identify as if we can, you know, just look at someone and say, oh, based on your heritage, you are absolutely this or that. 
And so that's what got me thinking about racial ambiguity. And from mixed race people, I started to think about other types of Asian Americans that don't fit neatly into the categories that we give them. And so, for example, transracial adoptees, many of whom come from Asian nations, raised in non-Asian families, largely white. Um, you know, and I've, I've taught many transracial Asian adoptees who grow up in white families, like who grow up in Jewish families and they're raised Jewish. But if you look at them, right, optically, they look to have Asian features. And so then they get to college and they're being confronted with this disconnect about the way that they were raised, what their religious identity and cultural identity is, and then the way that people are treating them based on the way that optically they're presenting. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNN, HHFM 103.5, um, talking with Professor Jennifer Ho. Um, you were just talking about what racial ambiguity is uh, and, and how we should kind of frame uh, uh, this conversation. And so this is a very personal conversation to you. This was something that uh, you, you decided to write a book on based off of the experiences you had, the conversations you had. And so as a professor, um, how do you... Uh, how do you have these conversations with students and how do you encourage them to be curious to to better understand themselves and better understand their peers and colleagues? Yeah, I, so first of all, I love teaching and students are wonderful. Um, and I feel like we don't give students enough credit, mm. you know, college and high school students, I would say, especially. Um, and, you know, I, I know that I've had, I mean, I've, I've had people actually write to me and tell me I'm indoctrinating students by teaching them the content that I'm teaching them. And I just think these must be people who've never had teenagers because the quickest way to get a teenager to do something you don't want them to do is to tell them that they have to do something. And so I'm not, you know, I, what I do is I present the material to my students that most of them self-select into my classes. Like sometimes my classes fulfill a requirement, but most of the time students are curious, right? They're intellectually curious about these subject matters. And so when I teach a class called Mixed Race America, you know, and I just taught that two years ago to a group of first year students at um, CU Boulder. And I would say about half of them were taking the class because it was a first year seminar and it fit their schedule and they really didn't had no idea what the topic was going to be about. Um, but I just presented the material to them and I showed them that this is super interesting material, right? Like to talk about the United States as being a space of mixed race people where people of different races interact and mix and mingle, but also where there are multiracial people and that there have always been multiracial people with us. And for us to examine racial categories and the way that they've changed over time, um, I mean, they were great. They were, I also let them choose final projects that, again, spark their intellectual curiosity. And so it's really, it's never been a problem for me to teach students about the subject matter. Um, and I definitely have conservative students who, you know, question things and that's absolutely fine. They should be questioning things. I want students to question the knowledge they're receiving and I want to help them develop critical thinking tools so that if they're going to make an assertion, they can support it and they need to find the evidence to back them up. No, that, that makes sense. I, 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 um, I always laugh because one of my uh, prof favorite professors is conservative. Um, uh, I don't think I would have run for office if I had never uh, crossed paths with them. And so it always makes me laugh where I'm probably one of the most left students they've had. And uh, ironically, you know, they're one of my favorite professors. I can't speak highly enough of Jonathan Wharton uh, at SESU Go Owls. Uh, but, <laughs> I, you know, what books are so important, right? Uh, the, 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 the tomes that we choose to read open up possibilities, allow us to explore uh, different perspectives and so in this time in this place if you could suggest a couple of uh, books to people what would those books be that you know you feel are critical and important uh, for better understanding about you know Asian Americans and about uh, 
understanding what it is to 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 uh, understand American history. Yeah, I mean, so this is both like a joyous question to get and a super hard question to get. But let me let me start with a book that has recently been published in paperback um, mm -hmm. from my friend and colleague, um, Dr. Kathy Choi mm -hmm. at UC Berkeley. Uh, Kathy teaches or Dr. Choi, I guess, to, to be formal, teaches in the um, Ethnic Studies Department at UC Berkeley um, and has written a book called Asian American Histories of the United States with Beacon Press. It is a wonderful book that doesn't just follow a traditional chronology of, you know, starting in the 18th century, moving to the present, but really, and really centers um, the voices and experiences of Asian American groups that I think we oftentimes um, don't center and start with. Um, so for example, um, she herself is Filipino identified, Filipina identified and um, really talks about um, Filipino Americans. And, you know, another history book that I think does a really great job of centering stories that of Asian Americans that don't often get story get um, centered is um, Erica Lee and her book, The Making of Asian America, mm -hmm. um, where she really starts with um, she actually starts with the Caribbean. She starts with Jamaica and Trinidad and um, both Chinese and Indian indentured servants who filled a labor gap in the Caribbean when the transatlantic slave trade was um, um, was dismantled. And I think those two, if you wanted to really get a history of Asian Americans are a great place to start. Erica's book is a little bit more academic. I think Kathy's book is a little bit more user-friendly in terms of a, you know, written for maybe a more general audience. Both are really wonderful and both are, you know, tremendous scholars. Um, and then if you're looking for um, something that's really pleasurable to read, um, let me put, give a shout out to my friend Sejal Shaw, who has um, a collection of essays called This Is One Way to Dance about her experiences growing up as Indian American. And I think, again, it's really important to center South Asian voices. Um, and a poet who is a Pacific Islander poet, um, Craig Santos Perez, who's Guamanian, um, has, a, has several poetry collections. The one I just taught is called Habitat Threshold, which isn't just about Pacific Islander experiences or um, being in Hawaii, but it's also about um, you know climate change and the way that our environment is being threatened by global climate change. For for that being hard, it flowed off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many others. <laughs> that okay, that's the hard part. There, yeah, that's that, the hard part. Um, you know, COVID nineteen uh, was is continues to be. Uh, 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 ever-growing learning experience of people dynamics about cultural dynamics uh we saw uh anti-asian uh racism in full swing uh and continue to see uh those sentiments uh, uh, uh arise and so you know as i was reading one of your articles uh you use the term intersectional oppression. And so, you know, what is, can you break down what intersectional oppression is and, and, and then, uh, you know, how do, how does that equate with intersectionality? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, so the, the theory of intersectionality from an academic standpoint really originates with um, Kimberly Crenshaw who is an amazing legal scholar and who um, wrote an essay, a legal essay, about the ways in which black women um, stand at the intersections of racism and sexism. And so for Kimberly Crenshaw, for Professor Crenshaw, it's really important that we understand that some of us have identities that are impacted systemically um, by various forms of oppression. So that could be sexism, that could be racism, this can be um, ableism, homophobia, various types of religious bigotry. So that, um, and you know, from a legal point of view, you know, she was, she was pointing at certain cases and the case that, um, that she used to really illustrate this was um, a lawsuit brought by a black woman of a manufacturing firm 
and um, she, you know, cited discrimination on not being promoted. Um, and she was, the, the court did not find in her favor. And here's why. So what the court found was that there were women who were promoted mm. and there were black men who were promoted. And thus she did not suffer from either racism or sexism because black men and white women were being promoted. Now that's the catch, right? The black men who were being promoted were working in, um, in the manufacturing centers. And the white women who were being promoted were in the secretarial pool. But what they didn't understand were the uniqueness of being a black woman and that black women were being promoted. And so that black women were experiencing a unique form of sexism and a unique form of racism because they stood at the intersections of racism and sexism. And if someone only looked at race and only looked at sex, then their the intersectional oppression that they were experiencing was going to get overlooked. Mm. And so I think some, some I think um, especially um, in the wake of Donald Trump's election, and I really hate to say that everything is reactionary to 2016, but I think the term intersectionality, at least I saw really emerge in public discourse and in public conversation following 2016, where intersectional, I think, took on a meaning that you know, all of us have more than one identity. You know, um, I'm Chinese Jamaican, I'm a woman, I'm able-bodied, um, I'm a home chef, all of this, these are all my, I'm a corgi owner, right? But the thing that I stress in my classroom is that the theory of intersectionality is actually a theory of intersectional oppression. It's not just that we have multiple identities, it's that some of us are experiencing systemic inequity in this particular way that you can't just pull apart. Mm -hmm. No, I, 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 I agree so much with what you say. I, um, I, I've, I found it interesting that in, in all the, 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 the articles and all the things in the way that you write, you always were intentional to use anti-Asian racism uh, rather than Asian hate, and was just curious about why you chose to do that. Yeah, I, I like to focus things on systems, and, I, and that's also the way that I teach, and I think that may be, that may be helpful mm. um, for people to understand, because I think that if I point my finger at you and I say, Justin, you're racist, mm. right? You're, you hate Asian people. You're, you know, and by the way, I, of course, don't think that at all about you, Justin, right? But, you know, like, you're, you're immediately going to get defensive and feel like, why, you know, why is Jennifer pointing her finger at me? And why is she calling me a racist? And why, you know, whereas if I say, you know, Justin, that comment you made, I think is part of anti-Asian racism, right? It's, it plays into this systemic notion we have of who Asians are and how they have been discriminated institutionally. And so then if we, it allows us to take a step back for us to think about systems of racism and the ways that all of us are implicated, no matter what our identities are. So the, even though I'm Asian American identified, I can actually perpetuate anti-Asian racism because racism is a system. It's mm. really best understood as a system so that, you know, if I engage in language and acts that are harmful to Asians, then I'm I'm perpetuating a system of anti-Asian racism. And that it's not just that it's impossible for me to be racist against Asians because I happen to be Asian. No, that, that, uh, it was funny to read one of the articles and, and uh, uh, I, I guess not so much funny, but tragic to see uh, commenters saying like, what? There are black people assaulting Asian people. How could that be white supremacy? And kind of mm. not looking at the systematic larger picture of how we all right, have biases, but all we complain into institutions and how we all have power and agency in that. Um, yeah. No, I wasn't. I mean, let, to put it in the most simplest terms, um, Black people didn't invent anti-Asian racism, right? 
the idea, you know, especially connected to COVID-19, the idea of Asians being diseased mm -hmm. and thus responsible for a global pandemic is an idea rooted in yellow peril rhetoric. And yellow peril rhetoric developed out of Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. So that's not, you know, if we're, now I'm not trying to give credit to Europeans for inventing yellow peril rhetoric, you know, and I'm not saying that black people haven't participated. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. I think when we see videos of black people harming Asians, they have bought into the yellow peril rhetoric. But that is very much a white supremacist idea and which white supremacy doesn't require, you know, and I, I thought that I was trying to be as clear as possible, right? White supremacy is not about white people. White supremacy is an ideology that anyone and everyone has participated in. So I know that the line that really got a lot of people upset with me is maybe the way to put it, is when I write about how white supremacy does not require white people. But it's really true. White supremacy means that any one of us, regardless of our identities, can perpetuate white supremacy so that when we are seeing videos of black people harming Asians, and by the way, I'm not excusing that at all, but that what black people harming Asians have bought into is a white supremacist notion that Asian people are harming the United States. No, that, that that is so true to me, the systems, the institutions, the cultural norms that we have, um, they all have precedent, right? And so if we continue on, it is true, you don't need any particular demographic of people to continue a type of prejudice, a type of mindset, a type of rhetoric. Um, as a person, as an individual, right, how does this time, place make you feel uh, as an Asian American, right, being in community, teaching, like how, how are you feeling as a person? Oh, thank you for that question. I mean, I have to be honest with you, I'm feeling really depressed. I mean, genuinely depressed about, um, about the state of the United States and worried. I mean, not just as me as an Asian American, although that's part of it, um, you know, the news about the mass shooting in Allen, Texas, and the more we're learning about the shooter um, and his white supremacist beliefs. And again, this is another, you know, I'm glad we're talking about all of this because the shooter has a, um, a Latino last name. I don't know how the shooter would have identified, but certainly his last name suggests that he may be of Latin American ancestry. Um, and, you know, people have asked, like, how can you have someone who's Latino be racist or be part of a white supremacist group? Because apparently he was really active on um, Russian social media. Um, he had Nazi tattoos. He had white supremacist beliefs. But again, you can be a white supremacist and be a person of color. And I feel like that seems really strange, right? That seems like totally bizarre that, that those two things can happen. But I, I think we see this. We can see like members of the Proud Boys who aren't white who are buying into white supremacist beliefs. And he apparently particularly hated Asian people. And among the eight victims is um, this family, a family of four in which the only surviving member is a six-year-old boy yeah. um, who no longer has parents and he no longer has his younger three-year-old brother. And he's Korean American. And this guy apparently had lots of anti-Asian slurs that he used. And he apparently targeted other non-white people. There are also, um, you know, two sisters who I think were Latina, little girls who died. There was an Indian American, um, you know, woman who died. It's, um, it's heartbreaking. It's hard the white people who died, it's all heartbreaking, right? It's heartbreaking that um, all of this is happening and that we can't seem to get on the same page and just do something that every other nation in this world has done which is to decide that we don't think it's a good idea for people to have access to weapons of mass destruction that can kill people in a mall, in a school, um, in a grocery store, um, in a church, in a synagogue, in a gurdwara. And I, I just feel depressed about the state of the United States. Mm. No, I, 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 
it, it is a, a, a uh, when I heard about Jordan Neely the other day, right, it was something where the, the I would say young man, but he's several years older than I am, right, uh, who was homeless and, and begging for food and water and got choked out. And I, I think it's one of those things where we're always present and, you know, we always want to be hopeful about the possibilities of what could be and imagining and picturing a, a, a better world, a better society. But then there's also the reality of every day where I avoided finding out more information because I just didn't want to know because I didn't want to feel. And so I appreciate you sharing your real feelings, your raw feelings with us. Because um, I think it is important for us to to take the good with the bad. Um, on the good part, what what brings you joy? What what brings you uh, a sense of peace about where we are? Oh, thank you for using the word joy, Justin. I've been I've been really thinking a lot about joy. <laughs> And about the necessity for us to talk about joy and to feel joy and to have joy be not just in the big things. I think we think about joy as being, you know, these momentous moments like when a baby is born or when someone gets married or, you know, and those are joyous events. And so I'm not trying to take away from that. But I've been really thinking about like what brings me joy on a daily basis and to name it and identify it as joy. Because I think especially for those of us involved in social justice, we need joy. And we can't feel like the joy is separate from the work. Because I think the joy is necessary to make sure that we can do the work. And so for me, um, joy is waking up in the morning and looking at the mountains. And I'm so lucky that I live in a place where I get to look at mountains and I can see the snow top Rockies. And I never realized I was a mountain person. I always assumed I preferred the beach, but moving to Colorado and being near the mountains really gives me great joy. Being in nature gives me great joy. Um, being able to snuggle with my corgi in the morning, you know, that gives me great joy. Having my husband make a cup of coffee for me um, brings me joy. And I, I'm not really, I'm not trying to make light of these moments. I am trying to really shift my mindset so that I can think about these small, simple acts as joy, because I think I need that to sustain myself from the realities of the world we're living in. No, that 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 is a beautiful mindset. Um, for those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNHH FM 103.5. Um, you know, we've talked about so much and, and, and talked about your scholarship, your study. What's your next project? What are you working on? So I'm, I don't think I have any relatives listening to your show. Maybe they, maybe I'll share a link with them or not. I, I'm working I'm working on a family. I mean, since since you began by asking me about Jamaica, I'm I'm working on what I'm calling a family biography, mm. um, if that is such a thing to talk about. And I hesitate because my grandmother, uh, my popo, um, never wanted me to write about her. Mm. And I think I do have an interesting family history in terms of you know, how my grandparents immigrated from Hong Kong, how they got to Jamaica, what their lives in Jamaica were like, and then how my aunts and uncles and my mother left Jamaica um, and went to Canada and the United States. Um, and I have, you know, aunts and cousins on, on three different continents in multiple countries and who have mixed and married and I think that's a really interesting history to talk about, but I, there are some family secrets I don't want to sort of divulge right now that I think is the reason, or rather I know is the reason my grandmother didn't want me to write about the family because it feels like airing dirty laundry. And so I'm trying to weigh 
respecting my grandmother's wishes with my own story. Because I, as a creative writing friend told me, I may not have the right to my grandmother's story, but I do have the right to tell my own story. And so uh, that's what I'm working on. Whether it will ever get published, I don't know, but I do feel I have to write it and then I can decide whether I want to publish it. No, that, that is beautiful. As we uh, near the end of our time, I, um, uh, I, my two favorite questions, uh, where can we find you? Uh, where can people connect with you? Uh, and then my favorite question, which is always the hardest question, uh, but what's a song or uh, 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 that connects us to the work or a song that's personal to you that we can connect and associate with you? Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to answer the first part. Um, so I, uh, we found each other on Twitter. Hey. So you can follow me at Twitter at Dr. Jen Ho. Um, I, I only put the DR part because Jen Ho was taken and Jennifer Ho was too long. So I don't want people to think I'm overly formal. I'm also on LinkedIn and you know Instagram and Facebook, although really I use those more for my friends. And so I, I will likely not um, be following people um, or connecting with people on those platforms, but definitely LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm very kind of, those are my public presences, I would say. Um, and then I'm easy to Google. You know, so if you Google Jennifer Ho uh, Boulder, you're going to find my faculty webpage, and I'm happy to connect with people over email. Um, in terms of a single song, um, so I'll, I'll name this one. Um, it is the it's the song "Overjoyed" uh, by Stevie Wonder, and it is a song that brings me joy, and it is a song that gives me hope, and I love. Stevie Wonder. I mean, I cannot emphasize to you how much I love Stevie Wonder. Like, I love Stevie Wonder in a way in which I sometimes have been thinking in the last year that I might see his name trending on Twitter. And I will know that that means he has passed. Mm -hmm. And I feel sad preemptively thinking about the passing of Stevie Wonder because I believe that he is truly a great human, somebody who made amazing music, but somebody who also dedicated his life to bettering the lives of other people through his activism, as well as his music. Um, and so I just, I just love Stevie Wonder with every fiber of my being. Um, and so I th I'd say any Stevie Wonder song, but especially the song Overjoyed. Well, we are so overjoyed to have you, Jennifer Ho, uh, University of Colorado Boulder professor thank you thank you so much um, thank you thank you to all of y'all who are listening you're listening to just in time conversations 103.5 FM um, until next time let us continue yeah. to plant the seeds of change so we can grow right. Traveling man, moving through places, space and time, got a lot of